Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and today we are revisiting this truly mind-blowing interview with the hilarious and resilient Kathy Griffin. You may have heard that Kathy is back in the news this month after revealing her recent lung cancer diagnosis and opening up about her attempted suicide in June of 2020. I was really glad to hear from her pretty recently that she is home recovering from surgery and starting to feel a bit better. I spoke to Kathy in our studio in the summer of 2019, when she was on a comeback tour of sorts promoting her documentary, Kathy Griffin, A Hell of a Story, about the aftermath of the infamous Trump photo that totally upended her life as she knew it. It was a freaking mask with ketchup on it. Let's be very clear. This morning, I was woken up by the FBI. Guess who was on the MAGA bombers target list? When I say I'm glad to be here, like, seriously, I was afraid. First member attorney, he said, they're considering charging you with conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States, which holds a lifetime sentence. You didn't know that part, did you? The First Amendment is under attack, truly. If you don't stand up, you get run over. I was detained at every single airport that I went to. I was held for six hours. <laughs> but obviously it's getting to me. Now I'm on this mission to make sure that they never, ever are allowed to do to anyone else what they did to me. This was such a fascinating conversation that also happened to prompt some of the only really negative reviews of this podcast on Apple from listeners who apparently are not fans of Kathy's. If you want to help counter that, I strongly encourage you to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating to show your support. Anyway, I hope you really enjoy this episode, whether you are hearing it for the first time or returning to it again. Here's me with one of the strongest comedians I know, Kathy Griffin. So I never do this, but I got a, I just got a news update on my phone that okay. I have to tell you about. Let's go. Sarah Huckabee Sanders will step down as White House press secretary at the end of the month. Just happened. Who's, who's, where are we having the party? <laughs> I mean, this is a celebratory moment. Yeah, instant reaction from Kathy Griffin. Wow. Um, okay. I'm, I'm assuming she just ran out of bright colored schmatas because I'm <laughs> obsessed with how she basically has one dress. It's like she has a singer sewing machine and she has one dress that she just reworks and it's above the knee. It's usually a little bit of a bell sleeve. Mm-hmm. It's a very mm-hmm. bright color and she is standing by that dress. And I mean, I've seen her walking to Air Force One where I'm like, oh girl, no. Oh no. Stiff wind. Oh God. Oh God. <laughs> so maybe she's leaving just to shop more, but I think she's been shopping propaganda long enough. Oh, no. who's with me, people? <laughs> I said it. So who can you imagine like who's going to be next? Go- Hogan Gidley? Oh, maybe. You like him? No, I don't like him. <laughs> because when I went to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, he had the nerve to come up to me and go, I'm drinking a Mexican beer and there's going to be a wall. And I was like, sir, can you keep moving? Hogan. I mean, I, I knew who he was, but like, that's that. I guess if you're Sarah Huckabee's right hand man, like that's your idea of a sick burn. Yeah, yeah. Sick burn. 
So uh, what do you think Sarah's going to do? Go into the private sector and make um, a fortune or with Corey fo- Lewandowski? Follow her, uh, her father's footsteps on the Fox News, maybe? Okay. Can we talk about the dad? With sure, the bad yeah. jokes and the guitar playing. Like, dude, you ran for president. Act like it. You know, at least, <laughs> like, does he still do? I, I mean, I can't even watch Fox for material anymore. Yeah. But I don't know if you remember, but he used to have a format that was like Donahue, where he'd like have a live audience, mm-hmm, which is just mm-hmm. weird in the Fox studio. I don't, I, I can't tell you for sure, but I don't think he does that anymore. Yeah, but they, I, they maybe mix he does. that. But yeah, I think he would play music sometimes uh, as part of the no, show. Constantly. Constantly. <laughs> he was, thought he was like so cool. And, you know, the, I mean, it's just so transparent. Like, clearly, ever since Bill Clinton played the trumpet or whatever it was on Arsenio, like, mm. that's become a thing. And I guarantee you, Huckabee, as much as he hates the Clintons, was like, good idea. But yeah. his his tweets are the, like, he's a, he actually missed his calling as just a really steady, hacky comic. Yeah. Like, his jokes are the definition of, like, a down and dirty club in, you know, Tuscaloosa Heights and he would be the headliner and they'd be like he is a riot like his <laughs> jokes are basically knock knock jokes and he's so proud of Sarah oh yeah he is not that would not fly in the Griffin household no if I behave like Sarah Huckabee my parents would be on my ass and not covering me on social media that's for sure <laughs> so I'm I'm saying there's a Griffin takeover yeah you get a bunch of my drunken Irish Catholic relatives to take over and you know there's shit's gonna get real. Yeah, I think you should pitch yourself to to succeed, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Oh, I think you would be great. I come up there. from a family where we call each other out on everything <laughs> constantly. So you know, I'm just saying that's how we should vote. Uh, so let's talk about the the documentary, uh, Kathy Griffin, a hell of a story. First um, of all, it's a docu comedy. Docu comedy. I've invented Excuse a me. genre. I've decided. So yeah, it's kind of like half documentary, half stand up special. Yeah. Um, and it it's really compelling movie. Um, I just got to see it uh, last week thank you um, so much and you in the movie you the comedy part comedy special comes sort of in the second half in the beginning you really jump headfirst into everything that went down yeah. with you and that infamous photo shoot um so we'll we'll dive into it now um when that was happening i mean you you had no idea that it was going to come to define you know so much of the the year or two years since then huh? oh my gosh i, I never could have planned it. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, I've done outrageous stuff my whole career and everybody knows that. And, you know, I've gotten to what I call Hollywood trouble before, and this was a whole other animal. But the part that um, I really wanted to cover in the film is I've learned so much since the incident, which was uh, May 30th, 2017. The fact that it was like the lead story. Somebody told me it was the lead story on Fox for 17 days in a row. And, you know, I did not know. And some of it I didn't know until I was doing research for the documentary part. Like, I didn't know that the, as you know, I call it the Trump wood chipper, the apparatus, Mm -hmm. which they had really only used on politicians until that. Because people have to remember, my photo was pre-Me Too, pre-Weinstein. Like, it was... You know, even though I, I still think it's open season on women, but when you're a 58 year old loudmouth comedian, whoo-hoo, nobody's got your back. All right. So I think, um, you know, what I didn't necessarily understand was how uh, Team Trump, and I'm thinking Pascal was involved in that whole crowd, um, how they were able to make it go global in almost minutes. And that's why I wanted to include in the film the memes and the cartoons and associating me with ISIS within 
hours of that photo Mm -hmm. going live. And a lot of people just don't know that stuff. They just think it was offensive or whatever. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. People globally thought that I was in ISIS in addition to thinking I went too far and I was a professional decapitator, et cetera, et cetera. So I was so excited. And I reference it in the film, you know, when it went live on TMZ, which was the photographer's choice, not mine. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten a tip from two former TMZ employees that Harvey Levin talks to the Trumps multiple times a week. Yeah. Which I found hard to believe, like seriously, even in this crazy administration. And I was so happy because I kept saying it. And then, you know, every, you know, the right wing was like, she's unhinged. And I'm like, no, I know Harvey. I know his game. And I was so happy when the Daily Beast finally wrote that great article where Harvey said that he considers himself to be Donald Trump's personal publicist. And that was one of the things that I was like, oh, okay, good. A little bit vindicated. Yeah. I mean, he's still doing it, but like the shocking nature of, as you know, the joke in the film is, can you imagine if Barack Obama was calling Perez Hilton for policy advice? (laughs) Like, you know, we kind of laugh about it, except it really is. Like, so then when AMI flipped and David Pecker and Dylan Howard, you know, I'm in the business for so long. I'm used to hit pieces in the Inquirer and stuff like that. But, you know, I thought when they flipped for the Mueller team, And then I found out about their acquisition from allegedly the Saudi money. A lot of people don't know that the Inquirer AMI then went on to do a giant acquisition of everything from men's fitness to life and style, in touch, okay. And unfortunately, in my industry, you know, they think that's like news. So I really could not have predicted that they would have all that help as well sort of um, continuing this narrative and, you know, like I said, making me unemployable and uninsurable. Yeah. So in the in the film, we see, you know, how it all played out. And um, we see, you know, you talk about the the apology that you gave pretty not too long after. Yeah. I sincerely apologize. I am just now seeing the reaction of these images. I'm a comic. I crossed the line. I moved the line. Then I cross it. I went way too far. The image is too disturbing. I understand how it offends people. It wasn't funny. I get it. And I think you, you've kind of said that you there are parts of that that you regret or, or feel like you may have, you know, you wish you had done differently, but also you, in a way, you stand by it. So can you ex- kind of explain how you how you yeah. feel about it these days? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So first of all, I a thousand percent rescind the apology because, mm-hmm. you know, I did it based on good advice. And I explained in the movie how Rosie O'Donnell called me and she said, I think you should apologize. But you have to realize when she said, people think you're an ISIS and they think you're inciting violence and not only that, decapitation. Like I had to sort of take that in because I honestly thought she was joking for real. And she called me again. And when she did say the words, what if Foley or Daniel Pearl's mother saw this? Then I thought, oh, my God, you know, I've performed in Iraq and Afghanistan and Kuwait and Uzbekistan and all this other stuff. And I thought, yes, okay, I don't apologize. And this is certainly whether you want to call it a joke or a statement. But when I thought of that, that's what I did. And it was the day of the photo and it was obviously a sloppy. And I even tell people, just look it up. I admit it's a hot mess. (laughs) But what what I did that was really wrong is, I mean, it was such a crazy time. I didn't want to sort of bring invoke the names of Foley and Pearl because mm-hmm. it's such tragic. And, yeah. you know, remember, this was pre-Khashoggi even. And so 
I guess if I had done it properly, I probably should have reached out somehow to those women personally Mm -hmm. and really explained myself. Because um, when I made the apology video, A, it was sloppy and it gave the right wing so much chum. And so then that became a meme of me like looking horrible, making the apology. And um, I also had like this horrible former publicist um, Cindy Berger, sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm, it's my opinion that she's horrible. It's covered <laughs> under the First Amendment. You know, she wasn't even my publicist at the time. I didn't have one. And then yeah. she called me going, do another take. And I'm like, this isn't an acting gig. Like, I'm yeah. in the middle of a legit crisis. Yeah, this is real. This is real. And so that's why I say I totally rescind the apology. And then I, in once again, another thing that I learned, I've learned in the last two years that literally every single person that I asked who was offended by that photo, I would say, you know, what is the most offensive thing? And I would say, um, are you military? I am not kidding. Not one person said, yes, I'm military. This is why I'm so offended by it. Every single guy said, have you seen those uh, decapitation videos on YouTube? I mean, it's really brutal. You shouldn't have done that. And I'm like, okay, I'm out. If you're so twisted that that's what you decide to watch on YouTube, yeah. F you and the horse you rode in on. So that sort of made me more indignant about the apology. But the Lisa Bloom press conference was another, we didn't have time to put it in the movie, mm-hmm. but that was another like disaster. And, you know, I always just tell people, go ahead and look at it. I got to own it, you know, mm-hmm. but. I didn't know it was going to basically be an infomercial for Lisa Bloom. I'm not a fan of her work and would not recommend hiring her. Once again, that's covered under the First Amendment. So I got bloomed. And then that made things worse. I'm going to be honest. He broke me. He broke me. He broke. And then I was like, no, this isn't right. It's just not right. And I apologized because that was the right thing to do. And I meant it. And then... I saw the tide turning and I saw what they were doing. I went, oh, okay, they're trying to spin this and they're making it about Baron. And obviously that was never my intent. I would never want to hurt anyone, much less a child. But I started to see what was really happening. And then it was a mob mentality pile on. And so many people have expressed to me personally across the country at my shows, they're scared. So yeah, I don't know what's, I don't know if I'm gonna get arrested today. I don't know, but I have to stand up. And it just, you know, I didn't know I was giving the right wing, like, just sort of more possibilities for memes and more rumors. And yeah, I think it raises that question of whether whether you can whether apologizing in these cases is worth it because they're not going to stop attacking you because you apologize. Oh, I learned that the hard way. I mean, it was it it was, you know, I mean, honestly, the thing that I want people to know and, and take away from this movie is honestly, it really can happen to you. And the um, the lengths that they go to and the apparatus and machinery that's in place to do this, you know, I mean, I hope people are paying attention, but I really feel truly I was the test case. And, um, you know, beyond like Samantha B and uh, Michelle Wolf, you know, he he did it. He does it to anyone from John Brennan in stripping of him of security clearance and stuff. So I honestly think that I was kind of the first one that they thought, hmm, can we can we ruin someone? And when Don Jr. said, 
uh, in an interview, we don't just want to ruin her career. We want to decimate her. I was like, yeah, I don't remember Sasha and Malia saying that. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember Chelsea Clinton saying that. Um, certainly not Amy Carter. And, you know, then I, I kind of got on my high horse and I thought I got to I got to get it together. And uh, yes, I, I admit I was broken for two days because the right wing loves to go, you're broken. Cause I said that in the press interview mm-hmm. and I'm like, all right, I was broken for two days. And then I picked my ass up and thought, all right, let's start really thinking. And then people just ditched me in mm-hmm. droves, droves. I mean, left, right, center, everybody ditched me. So I really felt on my own. And I thought, okay, just calm down, hunker down. And then the next call I got was from my lawyer saying the DOJ has opened an investigation, uh, two agencies, Secret Service, and the U.S. Attorney's Office. In fact, one thing I erroneously say in mm-hmm. the film is I must have been just nervous in that performance or something, but I said it was the AUSA, the uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney's Office. And my First Amendment attorney goes, no, no, it was the U.S. Attorney's Office, mm-hmm. meaning if they could just find anything. And remember, they were considering, this has never happened in the history of the United States, for real, yeah. to a private citizen, much less a comedian. They were seriously they spent two months of taxpayer money, you know, didn't happen to Johnny Depp, didn't happen to anyone who allegedly threatened the president, but they didn't call me and say like, hey, let's have a conversation and see if you're serious. They just opened it and that's never happened. So I immediately had to hire, you know, obviously a very expensive and very lauded Supreme Court winning First Amendment attorney. And... um they opened the investigation because they were very seriously considering charging me with conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United it's States. so insane. And I mean, how, how do you understand people it? People gasp mean, when they hear that. Yeah. Like, because I think a lot of people, and I don't expect everybody to follow the whole story, but the reason it's just so important that I keep saying that is I, I ain't going to be the last one. I'll tell you right now. I don't know who's next, but mm-hmm. they just opened that. They just opened the case. They didn't even try to like negotiate. And like I spoke with Bette Midler a couple of days ago and I said, oh, God, please tell me the Secret Service didn't even call you. And she goes, oh, no, they've called me three times. Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh. And by the way, I just want to say I have nothing against the Secret Service, nothing against the U.S. Attorney's Office. Like this didn't make me anti-government. The FBI was fantastic. Yeah. So they were very proactive and calling my attorney, calling my myself personally. And sometimes they would come to the house um, when they thought there was such an imminent threat that they couldn't even wait to let me know. And that's what was so ironic. And I'm kind of proud the film starts that way. The concert part is truly the day that I taped that special. The FBI woke me up that day. Uh, no knock, as they call it. Yeah. Um, and they said, Cesar Sayek, the MAGA bomber, the pipe bomber, you know, we've been interrogating him. As you know, we've, we've captured him. And they said we found three tweets where he said he's going to kill you. And I was like, man, I thought I thought I was catching all those tweets. Um, and they said, uh, we found we're here to tell you that he has a, a kill list that you're on that he has he has shared with like minded people. Wow. And then, I mean, here's the FBI in my house. And I said, okay, uh, I have a performance tonight. Did you know that? And they said, no. And I said, okay, well, most of my death threats are people wanting to kill me on stage. So are you here today to tell me that? And they said, it's an open investigation. We can't tell you. And I was like, okay. And I said, do you have, um, you know, 
they had to, they read me this thing called a duty to warn letter. And um, I said, do you have any advice? And they said, can you open your mailbox from 10 feet away? How would you go about doing that? Well, I thought about it. And I thought about those um, ads on as seen on TV with the old lady with the grabber. Mm, yeah. And I thought I should get two MacGyver them together. <laughs> and then I, that's going to be my life from now on. It's Thanks. just like, I'm going to be the crazy lady in my neighborhood with two grabbers duct taped together, oh opening my mailbox and just saying, good luck. And that, and so that happened in the morning in the performance that we see in the film is that yes. night. And so did you, were you, how I, were you feeling when you got on stage that night? I did what I've always done. I went, there's my opener. Like the <laughs> opener I had mine went out the window because yeah. I thought this is real. It's pressing into the story. And I also, honestly, I want to give the FBI props. They've been really diligent and amazing in my case. And, you know, I, I think they may have intervened and possibly saved my life for real. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, the death threats were they were so many in number and so specific. And they're just they're just very good at knowing like the credible ones from the non-credible ones and stuff like that. So, you know, I like I said, I'm not anti-government, still happy to be an American, still think it's the greatest country in the world. Just don't want anyone else to go through this. What I truly believe is, is an abuse of power. Yeah. And I also absolutely believe if there are any First Amendment attorneys out there trying to make a name for themselves pro bono, I actually really think I could sue the president for abuse of power. Like, yeah. I honestly do. Is that something you're considering? If a lawyer would step up because, like I said, I'm just me. All right. Like I'm a well-known person. I'm not crying poor, not any of that. I'm also not, you know, a fortunate daughter. I didn't grow up with money. I mm -hmm. worked my ass off for money. Like I said, try, you know, being a 58 year old woman and staying in the comedy game, you, you don't get a lot of support from the check signers. Um, but if if it was possible, if I if I had like Bezos money, you're damn right I would. Yeah. I would hire Ted Boutros tomorrow or, you know, whoever. And, and I would absolutely sue him for abuse of power um, because I believe that's what it was and is. And I also they're not showing any signs of stopping. Yeah. So. I mean, it's something this is clearly something that's still, you know, affecting your life uh, oh, yeah. to this day. I mean, how uh, it, in fact, I have a little update for you. I have been giving speeches about the First Amendment, which I'm very proud of. Yeah. Because um, I didn't even go to college. I'm not going to lie. I didn't go to college. <laughs> I did my first commercial at 17. Sorry. But anyway, I got invited to Oxford to give a speech, an Oxford U Union speech about the First Amendment and kind of my my case. Mm -hmm. And my assistant, Caleb, who's right here, was with me. And we uh, I hired a car service to take us from, the, you know, from London Heathrow to the hotel and got in the car. And the driver mentioned that he was from Morocco and he knew me from the photo. And, you know, I just kind of, I'm, I'm used to it now. Mm -hmm. You know, and I said something like, oh, yep, it's me, the crazy redhead from the picture. <laughs> and I thought, you know, he'd Usually when people bring it up, they're actually supportive, like yeah. especially in an intimate setting, like three people in a car. Um, and he said, well, I'm from Morocco. And if we were in Morocco, I could cut your tongue out right now. Oh, my God. And that was just a few months ago. So it lives on. And then I said, OK. And by the way, of course, I engage with this guy like an mm -hmm. idiot. I go, you're from Morocco. Are you aware that Donald Trump has called Africa shithole countries and or he should he, he doesn't know it's a, he thinks yeah. it's a country anyway and he goes i don't believe you i don't believe the media or you he's the greatest president the world's ever seen wow and i'm like thinking how long is this drive and it was pouring rain <laughs> and it was on an expressway so it's not like we could get off on the shoulder and hitchhike yeah and i'm telling you it was just like i was like texting caleb going start filming yeah and i filmed the guy and i um called the vice president it was actually music express was the car service mm -hmm. and they had subbed out to a European country. And I got to tell you, I wouldn't stop until I got the vice president um, 
of Music Express on the phone from New York and he couldn't have been nicer. And he said, I'm so sorry. And I said, look, I need you to send me proof that you fired this guy. Because if I read in the London Times tomorrow that like one of your drivers, and I know it's a sub company, like was violent with a woman, I, I couldn't live with myself. Mm -hmm. So this, yes, the story continues. Wow. I mean, that's for the it, sequel. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great that you're, you know, able to make jokes about this stuff and find find the comedy in it. But as you as you mentioned, I think before we started rolling, you there are some really dark moments in this film as well when you're, you know, touring in Europe and and so can you just talk about what was um what were you, what were your biggest fears uh when you were on that tour and and having those those moments of of uh of darkness? Well, I you know, I was in uh, you know, I, I, I did the European leg of the tour fairly soon after the photo. So the photo was May 30th, October 2017. So a couple, couple months later. And I did I did know tour overseas first. Mm -hmm. And so I felt safer. But um, what I didn't know was that once I was off the no fly list, which I was on for two months. Um, and I do want your listeners to know that I actually uh, am able to, in the film, walk the audience through the actual under oath interrogation I did with the feds. Because once again, people think I just like got a phone call or something. Um, and by the way, when the interrogation was done, the first thing I said was, am I allowed to talk about this publicly? And they mm. said yes. And I was like, I love this country. <laughs> All right. So uh, so that was something that was important to me also to tell really the details of that interrogation. Um, so when I went overseas, you know, I was still honestly like kind of in a I was still everything was still bizarro Seinfeld upside down. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I had been put on the Interpol list, which my. Uh, attorney warned me about. And at the time, I started making a lot of relationships with a lot of journos, a lot of former FBI, former Secret Service, former CIA. I had a lot of people help me, um, you know, reach out to folks that could give me advice. And I spoke to a former Secretary of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. uh, not Kirsten Nielsen, not from this administration, <laughs> who, by the way, wisely said, um, hey, I don't know what you've heard, but they can take your phone and your SIM card, even at Los Angeles Airport or whatever. And I said, thank you, because I heard like, oh, no, no, that's all over. Because if you remember, that was starting with the Muslim ban. Mm -hmm. And folks were just having their SIM cards taken and United States senators weren't even able to yeah. get beyond TSA and all this other stuff. And that's what happened. So I was detained leaving LAX, mm -hmm. landed uh, in uh, Sydney first, and I, I was terrified because I learned I was put on the Interpol list, mm -hmm. which is for terrorists. Yeah. And so and also someone said you might also be on the Five Eyes list, which is even worse. So I was we filmed it. We're making a documentary. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I did an unscripted show for six years. So I know you have to like really show the uncomfortable stuff. And I was I'm not an anxious person. I really, mm -hmm. really was terrified to just even get off the plane because I feared I would get detained. Mm -hmm. I did. And as I say in the film, every country I was detained in, 15 countries, I think, 17, they took my phone, my SIM card, my passport, and they just walk walk out of the room and they leave you in a detention room. And I was too scared to ask what was happening because I didn't want to, like, piss anybody off. And every single time they would eventually return all of my stuff. Sometimes it would be a long time, like Singapore was six hours. Sometimes it would be half an hour. Um and I, I admit, I never had the balls to say, can you please tell me what's on my passport? So I have filed three FOIAs, mm -hmm. no return yet. 
I even reached out to Jason Leopold. Yeah. And I still to this day don't know what they put on my passport, but it got me stopped at every airport. And that's another thing I want people to know. They can put something on your passport and never tell you, or in my opinion, this administration is slow walking FOIAs, and especially that one, because they don't, they know me. The minute I find out, I'm going to come gonna, back here you're, you're and I'm going to tell, tell you exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's just another thing I, I just want every viewer to know that can, that can happen if they just decide. Mm -hmm. So when you tour for a living, that's quite an impediment. You know, and also remember, I've known the Donald for 25 years, you know, and he hired me on two separate occasions to roast him. Yeah. One of them was actually part of um, I was never a contestant on The Apprentice, but I was part of two challenges. And one of them was part of a challenge. And, you know, I mean, I'm not saying like we were buds or anything, but he certainly can never act like he doesn't know like my shtick or that I'm right. a very sort of vulgar in your face comedian. And he obviously knows probably that I'm not associated with some big movie franchise. I didn't even have a publicist at the time. You know, there was nobody, nobody was going to come in and save the day mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So I, I think I think I was uh, sur surgically chosen. Yeah. And, and obviously we know his he has a little issue with women. Yeah. Little and, issue. and, uh, and it seems like redheaded women in particular, thinking, right? uh, you, Samantha B, Michelle Wolf, and Bet Bette Midler. Now, what do you think that's about? What is it? <laughs> you know, it's, I'm going to say mommy issues. Like who, who knows what his issues are? Yeah. He is such a study in, you know, whatever, narcissistic sociopath, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yes, he, he clearly has a problem with women and I'm actually quite proud of something that I hope you saw on my social media platforms, which is when he went after bet, I waited a couple of days cause I, I was like, oh gosh, I know what she's going through. Yeah. And she had sent me a really, really lovely email the day of the photo or the day after like really compassionate mm -hmm. and just really thoughtful. And, you know, I didn't post it or anything cause yeah. I thought I don't want to bring my freaking death threats to her. Yeah. And, um, so I called her and I said, you know, what's it been like? And she was like, oh, my gosh, it's been so crazy and stuff. And then I told her about um, Stormy Daniels saying like, oh, I'm in like now I'm in really good company, like Kathy Griffin and Bette Midler. <laughs> and um, I said that Stormy had posted something like, hey, hey, to her own fans, like, can you guys come up with a name that, of our new club? Mm -hmm. So I told Bette that. And she goes, well, what should we do? I don't really know Stormy. I go, I do. I go, we just went out for dinner a month ago. <laughs> and so um, I said, the responses in Stormy's timeline are a lot of people are putting like memes of Hocus Pocus. Mm -hmm. And then um, Bet goes, oh, my God, I can have my team do like a Photoshop picture of the three of us in Hocus Pocus. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, how fast? And she goes, today, girl. And so we put it out the next day. And I think it's like sort of the perfect way to show, yes, you can be a resistor with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And the Secret Service is not going to call us about that photo. Yeah. But I do think it should be in the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> um, so the documentary, uh, you you decided to to kind of fund and, and put out yourself um, yeah. in a way. I mean, and that was, was that out of necessity because of, um, I'm you know, I, I know you've talked about yeah. how a lot of, you know, opportunities kind of dried up um, after all this. So, Oh yeah. I'm completely blacklisted in television and streaming and just keep in mind, like I've, I've, literally generated billions of dollars over my 40 year career for mm -hmm. every, I've worked for every single network, you know, obviously all kinds of cable, HBO, low budget cable, all this stuff toured, you know, been touring like an animal. I mean, I think the year before the, the Trump photo, I had done 80 cities in one year. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, gosh, they all turned their back on me. And yet 
all the representatives took their 10%. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another reason I, I actually wanted to make the film is to like, I'm really serious when I say to people like, save your money. You know, and whether you're a show business person or whether you're just someone who likes to shop a lot or whatever, I do think a lot of Americans, it's kind of a uniquely American thing. And I just say that as someone who's traveled a lot to kind of think, you know, if you want something, you're just going to get it, put it on the credit card no matter what. Or if you have a good income year, it's going to be that way forever. Mm -hmm. And luckily, being from depression parents, use it up, wear it out, make it do. <laughs> um, ever since I can remember, I've been a big saver. And, you know, I that's another big part of my message is I want to tell, especially as many young people as possible, like seriously, save your money. You really, you don't know when a rainy day is going to come and I'm in the middle of a monsoon. Yeah. You know, and so... Um, um, yeah, like the what I call them the check signers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people also don't know that Hollywood, honestly, is the the people who decide what you're allowed to watch or go see in the movies. It's about 10 dudes. Yeah. Like there's not one single female that can sign a check to this day. Like Shonda Rhimes doesn't get more powerful and talented. She can't greenlight her own show. Yeah. She's got to kick it upstairs. Mm -hmm. And it's I they this is why I'm not exactly beloved in Hollywood, but I call them the old white dinosaurs. And the reason I say that is it's the same guys who 25 years ago, when I went into their offices, said, you know, your nose is too big or you're too this, you're too that, you're too edgy. You know, in the meantime, it's like I got two Emmys. I got a Grammy for Best Comedy Album. I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records for having written and produced more televised stand-up comedy specials than any comedian, male or female, living or dead. And I keep trying to, like, set these benchmarks for younger folks to see. And, um, you know, these these dudes, they can't let go. Yeah, I mean, so you are, you are putting it out in theaters for for one night, I believe. Is that it's the point? It's 700 right theaters across the U.S. Yeah. I love you, Fathom Events. Yeah. And by the way, Granny here, I didn't even know what this was. Apparently, this is a whole thing. Yeah, they Did do you know kind of one this? night. They do, I think they do like operas and they do um, it's so concerts. Cool. And, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So what they do is it's this company called Fathom and they do one night, one showing in, and they own a bunch of theater chains. I really give them credit for, as I said in the press release, Fortitude, because you know, this is a controversial topic to folks. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's people that think I'm an ISIS and think I'm part of whatever QAnon is. And I don't really have time to even try to figure out the latest <laughs> incarnation of that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really thrilled and excited that they're that they're put it in theaters all over red, blue, purple everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I hope people locally start like their own like user generated Facebook event pages so they can. You know, like if you're a gay guy and you live in some super red city, mm -hmm. like start a Facebook page yeah, and find some some, some, some people like to go with yeah. people and go and and, you know, the ticket sales are are good. And I just I just can't believe it. I yeah. can't believe it. So I've just I don't know if you know this. I've decided that I'm a film auteur. Mm, yeah. I used good. to be just a mere television <laughs> legend. But now I've decided that I'm going to get the Irving Thalberg Award at the Academy Awards. Oh, the Lifetime Achievement. That's a good one. Yeah, I don't qualify at all. I'm just saying, I'm putting it out there. It's on my secret board. Coming up, Kathy talks about the dramatic end of her friendship with Anderson Cooper and shares her true feelings about CNN president Jeff Zucker. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. We have had so many incredible comedians on this show including Sarah Silverman, Mike Berbiglia, Maria Bamford, Patton Oswalt, and so many others. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to the show. So there are a couple uh, moments in the film that I that I wanted to talk about specifically. Uh, one is um, the the section about uh, CNN and Anderson Cooper. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your uh, any any updates on your relationship with with Anderson? No, no updates. And you know, I thought it was important to tell that story because a I'm not stupid. I know what my audience wants. I always <laughs> am listening. I I call it taking the temperature. You know, I'm always reaching out either via social media or just after just doing it for decades. You kind mm-hmm. of have a feeling, you know, and people want to know that part of the story and. Um, so I just tell it truthfully and I'm honest about it. And I say, I don't have a punchline for this one. Mm-hmm. It just hurts. Um, and I have a long history with Jeff Zucker. And, you know, um, there was a time when he was my boss at NBC when I was on Sudley Susan in the 90s. And, you know, he personally cast me and that was a gigantic break that changed my life. And then um, when I did my life on the D-list, first Jeff was going to do a big, fancy, splashy, expensive NBC sitcom. And then he figured out a way to just, you know, do a nice down and dirty Bravo on the cheap show, but still I had a great time doing that show and two Emmys and six nominations. I'm very proud of that show. And I got to show off how hilarious my mom and dad were. And it was it was real. Like it was really that was before the days of like soft scripted reality. Like Mm, it was it was a real show. And they would film me for six months for eight episodes. I mean, it was <laughs> relentless. But anyway, I'm I'm proud of the show. And Zucker and I were okay. Like, I remember, you know, one year um, he wouldn't give me a raise. And so I called him personally and I put my mom on the phone and I had my mom <laughs> negotiate um, a raise. And like, you know, he was laughing and he just kept going, you're not really doing this. You're not really <laughs> having... And I go, oh no, she's in a muumu and she has a box of wine. So don't mess with her because you have met your match. And so, you know, like he was, you know, he was my boss. And ironically, he actually had me um, and I'm not really a roaster. I know you just mm-hmm. had Jeff Ross on. Yeah, Jeff yeah. is like the ultimate. But he had me, um, I'm always the diversity hire. Like I can't tell you how <laughs> many shows I've done, especially like a corporate gig like that. He had me do this corporate, um, I think he was getting the Paley Center Award. I've given him two awards, ironically, Paley Center. And I think he was being honored for something else. And, you know, I was the only female again. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sorry to say it hasn't changed as much as, I, my joke is time's not up yet. Yeah. Not yet. Um <laughs> 
And so I guess the part that sort of stuns me to this day is, number one, you know, if you don't know, let me just say that photo, whether you like it or not, was absolutely beyond within the parameters of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So people that think I broke the law are misinformed. Right. Um, But, you know, Jeff knows that. And so to can me from New Year's Eve, which a lot of people know me from that more than anything, yeah. you know, 10 years. Mm-hmm. A lot of people watch that. Yeah. A lot of people watch it. And I had a blast doing it. And I just just was in love with Anderson. I mean, I just loved him. And I just fell in love with his mom, the the mm-hmm. one and only Gloria Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, I guess the I mean, I know this is going to sound silly, but like I kind of think Jeff owes me an apology. Like, seriously, I didn't do anything wrong. He's yeah. the head of a global news organization. And, you know, I, I mean, they I, must, I, you know, he must have been they must have been feeling the heat, you know, from on the, on the Trump the heat, stuff, too, because because Trump already hates uh, CNN. Right. I, yeah. But on the other hand, Jeff, he really acts like a tough guy and he's a pussy. Like yeah. he's really a pussy. And the last time I did um, New Year's and I, I didn't say this until I got canned because I didn't want to get canned. I actually enjoyed doing it. But I'll never forget. He called me and rare right? That Jeff mm-hmm. would call me at home. And he said, um, hey, you know, the, the show had expanded to four and a half hours live, which I mean, I don't mind because as you can see, I'm chatty. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a lot of airtime, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, I had asked him for a producer credit and he said no. And I said, Jeff, who do you think comes up with four and a half hours of material? Like, seriously. And he wouldn't do it. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And in my opinion, that's sexism, but that's just me. But anyway, he was calling to say, okay, I'll give you one Trump joke per hour. And I go, what, Jeff. And once again, I go, you're the head of a global news organization. You hired Kathy Griffin, okay? Not like... (laughs) You know, Jerry Seinfeld, who never curses, you know. Yeah. And I said, you know what you're getting. You know I'm a ratings grabber. You know that Anderson and I, and I have genuine chemistry. I know it's only one night a year. But, you know, I said, why are you limiting me? Because Trump, he could not be more in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and he just said, I just don't want to deal with it. Wow. I know. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I would just like to say... I feel I have bigger balls than Jeff Zucker <laughs> or Jeff Fucker, as I now call him. And there's a clip uh, in, that you show in the movie as well of uh, your your replacement on the New Year's Eve, Andy Cohen, uh, talking to TMZ. It's a very odd clip, and I think we will we'll include it uh, here for people to hear, just because it's it's if you haven't seen it, it's insane. It's insane. Have you uh, talked to Kathy at all in the meantime? Did you run a bio first before you accepted it? Or... Who? Kathy Griffin. Who? Kathy Griffin. I don't know her. The the ex-host. Oh, okay. With Anderson. Okay. What do you mean? Like, she used to host it with Anderson, now it's going to be you, you're kind of replacing her, right? Oh, okay. Because CNN gave her the axe. How come this is news to you? I don't know. So you haven't talked to Kathy Griffin about it at all? No. No? This is a bizarre interview, man. Is it? Well, you don't know who Kathy Griffin is? trying to remember. The, the red-haired one who held the Trump head, who used to host your replacement, Andy. Like, honestly, that's why I included it, because, and I just want you to know, I had this film vetted to death. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I vetted the fuck out of this film. In fact, I hired a uh, conservative attorney. So I just 
Want yeah, everyone to make to know, sure everything's uh, don't bother suing yeah. me, motherfuckers, because <laughs> this shit is vetted and it is fair use. But yeah, that was one of those moments where, you know, once again, my phone lit up way too much. And don't you love when your friends love to tell you bad news? <laughs> like they love to be like, hi, I miss you. Anyway, here's some horrible news. Bye. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was I, I mean, I don't even want to describe it too much because it's. It is interesting when we were in editing, like the director and the editor were, were blown away by just that clip. Yeah. And that's all I'm, I'm going to say. It's I, I call those incidents um, unnecessary roughness. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm I'm down, honey. You don't need to kick me anymore. Yeah. OK, I'm down. So yikes. Um, yeah. The other story that you tell in the movie that I had not heard about before was the that there was a chance that you were going to be on SNL, the SNL premiere that yeah. fall. And so can you just tell because I. I there was something Alec Baldwin reached out to you, but what, what was the story there? Okay. So, you know, one of the things that I need to this day, and I'm going to be honest, one thing that just bums me out to this day, I have still not had one single significant public advocate. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to defend Michael Avenatti. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're a little late for that. Yeah. But let me tell you, I would have killed to have some attorney going on cable news five nights a week saying, hey, you may not like Kathy Griffin. You may not like that photo, but this is America and the president of the United States and the attorney general should not be taking comedians and doing this to them. And this has never, ever happened in the history of these United States. So to this day, it makes me really sad, you know, and I guess it's because I'm, like I said, I'm ballsy and I'm considered to be old or maybe Maybe I'm not pretty enough or whatever it is, but I, you know, really needed that. And, you know, at the time I, I mean, I was, I was DMing showrunners, producers of sitcoms and stuff that I don't even know. And Mm -hmm. just reaching out to people and just going, just, can I have just three lines on like a network show? Like just to remind people, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm not a violent person. I'm not an ISIS or Al Qaeda. Like... And it was a a lot of response from people just being honest. And I appreciate when people are honest saying, I ran it up the food chain and that it was an absolute no. And then I even had some very powerful people saying, and I even called other networks because I know this person and it was a no. And at the same time, you know, I was getting a lot of really nice um, like text outreach, like Judd Apatow was texting me every day and checking in and Adam McKay. And that was all really nice. And then <laughs> I'm such a bitch. After a while, I just went, if only one of you knew a really powerful producer that could give me five (laughs) lines in a film and maybe help me a little bit. And then, you know, but anyway, Alec Baldwin was reaching out and, you know, saying, you know, basically this is not what we do in America. And then when he said, Lauren and I would like you to do the premiere of SNL, I was like, no way. And I even said, I go, I don't think Lauren's a fan. Like I've had dinner with him a few times when um, Sue Mangers was still with us. She was Mm -hmm. a former power agent and she would have these sort of iconic dinners. Um, and I said, that's really, you know, and I auditioned for the show way back in the day. And I go, I, I just got to be honest, Alec. I go, I don't think he's a fan. So it's just like your idea. And then the next day he goes, nope, I talked to Lauren. He's a fan. And I'm like, awesome. And, you know, I said, obviously, that would be great. And I said, look, I'm not being precious. I said, if you want me to walk on, you know, holding like the head on a stick and if you guys can make it funny, <laughs> I'll throw myself under the bus. And then he said, you know, do you have any ideas? And we're going to work on some ideas. And I remember I called my agents at that time and they represented Alex as well. And I said, okay, now it's getting to the point where I need somebody to sort of officially step in. Like, is mm-hmm. this is this Alec just trying to be a good pal and say, don't worry, you're going to get work again? Mm-hmm. Or are they really thinking about a sketch with 
with me in it yeah. or whatever. And I remember my agent saying, no, no, we don't want to bother Lauren. And I'm like, oh, welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. So um, finally, uh, it just, you know, it just kind of came and went. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, I, I I'm not blaming Alec because I really do think he had good intentions. Yeah. Um, I do blame Lauren, but but you know, I you know, I I just and I guess I'm just disappointed that, like I said, like to this day, all the powerful people that could have just stepped up and done anything. I mean, mm -hmm. if I had done just even like a funny internet video with someone that could have given me some sort of stamp of like, she's okay. Mm -hmm. She's still the Kathy from Suddenly Susan, all the specials, my life on the D-list, guest spots on everything from Ellen to Seinfeld. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. She's still the same girl, you know? And to this day, nobody has done it. Yeah, well, well, one thing that you did do that I that I did really enjoy was playing Kellyanne Conway <gasps> on The President Show. Yes, I stand corrected. I feel terrible. <laughs> I feel terrible. Anthony, forgive me. Kellyanne's the best. She has absolutely no conscience. In fact, that's our next act. You can toss out the names of the worst people in history and she'll happily defend them. All right, Kellyanne, here's the first one. Bernie Madoff. Did Bernie Madoff's investors go bankrupt? Yeah, but I find it interesting the media used the words pyramid scheme. Frankly, that's anti-Semitic when you consider the terrible suffering of the Jewish people in Egypt at the time of the Pharaoh. So. This so-called bankruptcy is actually a moral one on your part, Wolf. Wow! Okay, so Anthony, who... Um, Anthony Atamanek. Yes, yeah. who, um, it, by the way, has become a friend, and yeah. he's just... He, he's I just so think talented, he's so yeah. talented. Okay, so he called me personally out of the blue, and um, I'll be honest, I think the president's show should be on, like, almost nightly. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, Comedy Central, don't get mad at me, but... You let that one go. I mean, Anthony is – that show is just so good. So he said, you know, do you want to play Kelly and Conway? And I think I, like, started crying. Like, <laughs> what? You know? And um, so I flew out to New York, and the wardrobe people were so cool. And I said, is there any way you can recreate that ridiculous Gucci head-to-toe inauguration mm -hmm. outfit? And they did it, and they got the wig and the makeup, and I got to do two episodes. And, you know, unfortunately, it wasn't a show that, like, got – a a ton you know a buzz but yeah. man underrated like netflix pick it up somebody pick it up and that it just meant the world to me it just meant the world and everyone on the set was so nice because mm -hmm. you know they were all they all obviously if you're doing that show you get it yeah. you have a sense of humor and you know it was that was the only work i had <laughs> i just don't want, i just just want to just be honest the day rate on basic cable is not something you can live on for a year not crying poor but just once again just want to reiterate none of you should have to be unemployable or uninsurable because donald trump gets mad at you or jeff sessions or bill barr you know mm -hmm. yeah uh steve mnuchin's wife like none of you should have to go through this because <laughs> of any of these crazies so before we before we end I, what i want to do is go do a couple a few non-political non-trump things it. um and by doing that by looking looking back at some of my favorite uh, moments of your career what? um this is like so. this is your life <laughs> go ahead uh so you were in the groundlings i was in the groundling theater which um, is a wonderful improv group in los angeles i'm from chicago so i grew up loving second city and when i moved to la when i was 18 i looked up the la weekly and i found out there was a similar type of group so yes i was i'm groundling trained i'm an improviser i taught there as my day job for many years 
very pro-groundling. It's a great place. Mm-hmm. And I know you were there at the same time as um, a lot of amazing people, but Lisa Kudrow, um, yes. uh, Julia Sweeney. Yes. Um, do you have any, uh, you know, just stories that kind of come to mind from from that time oh, in your oh life? Oh, my God. So many. Okay. So first of all, um, Julia uh, Sweeney, who played It's Pat on SNL, and Lisa Kudrow from Friends, and I actually auditioned for Lauren on the same night. For SNL, yeah. Yes, for SNL. And the way it would work in those days is the Groundlings has a Friday Night Late Show. And they kind of they kind of altered the show a little bit so that Lisa, Julia, and I each had like maybe two sketches instead of one or something mm. like that. And, you know, they ended up picking Julia and Lisa and I were devastated. And later on, we talked about like, you know, we kind of like dodged a bullet because obviously she got on Friends. Yeah. But also I was just happy to be on Suddenly Susan because I'm not saying it was the greatest show in the world, but at least we were treated nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like not having, I was hearing horror stories from all my I'm girlfriends sure. on SNL. Um, so it was it was really interesting because backstage the vibe was not good from the other cast members and i was just like okay that's like part of this business you got to deal with it you mm-hmm. know and so when Julia got cast, Lisa and I were like, okay, you guys going to talk to us now? We didn't get the gig. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I'm so proud of my time there. And I always tell people, whether you're a young filmmaker or I remember saying to Lauren, you could cast the whole season at the Groundlings. There's so many talented mm-hmm. people there. And when I became a teacher, like Will Ferrell was my student, um, Sherry O'Terry, and so many people that went on to either be on SNL or be on other great shows or be writers for really good shows. So I really loved all that training. And then it was, in fact, Lisa Kudrow who said to me one night, I think you're actually funnier as yourself than like doing all these wacky characters. Mm -hmm. And Lisa Kudrow and a friend of mine named Judy Toll, who's no longer with us, but she was a writer on Sex and the City, just a hilarious comic. Um, She got me a slot uh, on an open mic night and it was a total anomaly. But the first set I ever did, I killed. And I then decided to become a stand up as well as doing the Groundlings. I then bombed for 10 years. I'm not kidding. So I was that rare, like when you hear about like poker players where they win something once and Mm -hmm. then like they lose everything after that. (laughs) But I still knew it was something I wanted to do. And so um, Janine Groffalo and I started doing, um, as they say, alternative shows. And I would just walk into, no joke, a bookstore Mm -hmm. and I'd be like, what's your what's the time when you have the least business? And they would tell me and I'd say, okay, will you let us do a stand-up comedy show here? And, you know, I called it Hot Cup of Talk, which actually my friend Dana Gould came up with the title. I want to give him credit because he's brilliant. Yeah. And I mean, if you could have seen Janine and I, and sometimes like Colin Quinn would do a set. I think Ben Stiller showed up one night. Like it, it just became this dumb, fun thing to do. I don't think we ever had more than seven people in the audience. Um, one time, one of them, the audience members yelled at us because they were um, studying for the bar. And they're like, could you keep it down? I go, you're at a show. Like, I'm sorry, but we have a microphone and, you know, the quieter part of the bookstore is down there. And then I just got in the habit of going, you know what? The kind of stand-up that I do may or may not be appropriate for clubs. And so I actually did, like, I don't even know if you call them theaters, but I I did. I mean, I played a donut shop one time. Mm. By the way, I killed. Um, (laughs) And I wasn't doing well in clubs. And then I had to figure out, and like, Margaret Cho was a master is a master at this. Dana Gould is a master at this, at being able to switch between quote alternative, which is more kind of storytelling, which is what I do, and club and club material. So I remember going to see Margaret Cho, who I just adore and I'm still friends with, at Caroline's in New York one night, and I was just dazzled by 
how she was able to make that transition. So then I started working on that. Mm -hmm. So when I got on Suddenly Susan, I was able to start headlining at clubs and um, just because I was on a TV show. So I did that. And then I started moving into small theaters, like 500 seaters, 1,000 seaters. And I actually never went back because, you know, sorry, once you play Carnegie Hall five times mm. by yourself, it's pretty <laughs> freaking epic. Except because once a comic, always a comic, I can't stop myself. I had the most fun. I did five Mondays in a row at the Laugh Factory on the Sunset Strip, Monday night shows at 9.45 p.m. Because once again, mm. I go, give me your worst time slot yeah. and I will fill this club. <laughs> I did a brand new hour every single week for five weeks. Wow. How'd you pull that off? Because I'm a genius. <laughs> and no one noticed and no one wrote about it and no one cares. But damn it, I had fun and the audiences were like on their feet and so much fun. So even though I swore I'd never do a club again, only because I put my time in. I'm not dissing. I'm just saying I went back to the Laugh Factory and just I did the show in pajamas. Because mm -hmm. I said in LA at 945, everyone has to get up to go to the gym at four. The other thing from back in the day that I did want to ask you about yeah. is um, your two appearances on Seinfeld, which I loved. You mean why, why the show became a hit? <laughs> Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. You're welcome, Jerry. Because um, I think there's a very interesting story there, right? About how the first and then what Unreal. happened before the second Unreal. one. So can you just kind of. Uh, yes. Okay. So I had been, that? I had been honestly just floundering and working as an unpaid actress for years. I mean, I did everybody's student film in the world. I did everybody's play in the world for free, all this other stuff. And so um, finally there was sort of a break in the dam. And then the year before I got Suddenly Susan, I did something like five NBC guest spots. Mm -hmm. I did like Ellen, Mad About You, ER, Seinfeld, um, Caroline in the City. And, you know, and then that's what led to me getting on Suddenly Susan. And that's actually how Jeff Zucker got became familiar with like, oh, mm -hmm. she can be a funny sidekick. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, I couldn't believe that I got cast on Seinfeld. Like I couldn't even believe I was auditioning. Yeah. Um, I became friends with Larry David very quickly. Like he and I just hit it off. And, you know, I went and did an episode of the show. I played Sally Weaver, someone who was George Costanza's fiance's friend who just kind of lived to irritate Jerry. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is such a big gig for me. And I go to the table read and it was on a Sunday and the Golden Globes were that night. And that's why they were doing it on that Sunday. And they were nominated, of course. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there with these, I mean, this cast. And I, I mean, yeah. I really, I'm, I'm from Oak Park, Illinois. So yeah. this was an out-of-body moment. Mm -hmm. And that night I was going to um, a gay uh, Golden Globes viewing party because I'm not going to watch those shows with heterosexuals. You understand? <laughs> Nothing personal. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I said to Jerry, hey, I'm going to this party. They're going to like freak out if you just like just write like, you know, enjoy watching tonight Jerry Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't do it. Oh, and he was a total dick the whole day. Oh, man. And he finally did it, I think, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And then sure enough, I got my first special on HBO, HBO Half Hour Comedy Hour, my first one. And I told that story. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I went there. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I guess I was naive. Like, And also, mm -hmm. no one's ever taken down Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. So I remember then I got cast on Suddenly Susan. And I call Larry David immediately. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Suddenly Susan is now airing in between ER and Seinfeld. Yeah. And I have a special coming out in two weeks where I'm talking crap about Jerry for like 10 <laughs> minutes. And Larry goes, oh, he'll never, he's not, you're worth, you're not worth him watching. He's not going to watch you. <laughs> and, and by the way, Larry would also do this thing that was just cruel. He would call me almost every Friday, which was the Suddenly Susan tape day. Yeah. And he would go, so uh, what's, what's the, uh, what's the A story this week? And I'd go, Larry, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you. Okay, I get it. Your show's much better than Suddenly Susan. You win. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I go, no, I'm not going to do it. And he would beat me down and I'd go, 
It's a camping episode, and Susan <laughs> finds out she has an evil twin. Get off that show! You gotta get off that show! Walk <laughs> off the set! I go, okay, it doesn't work like that for me. And that was like our running joke. Yeah. So then, sure enough, the special airs, I will never forget. I get a call from my then agency, Gersh, and they go, there's a letter and a package here from Jerry Seinfeld. And I am not kidding. I think I had to run to the bathroom and have diarrhea. I was terrified. (laughs) And he wrote the funniest letter. I put it in my first book. I still have it framed in my house. And it was just so funny about like, you know, it was like, dear Ms. Griffin. It was just super (laughs) snarky. It was like, I understand you were a guest uh, on my show at one time. I'm so sorry. I can't remember because of my global fan base. And it was just so hilarious. And then I couldn't believe when Larry called me and said, we wrote an episode for you where you come back. You've become a comedian who bases her act on Jerry. And then Jerry (laughs) catches you. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) So that was just amazing. And so when I got to do my second episode, it was the week Jerry announced he was quitting the show. He was on the cover of Time. And it was just an amazing week to be there and Mm -hmm. talk to them about like what it was like. But more importantly, and this is where I really made my mistake. He, he, you know, he was, he was the first celebrity who basically sort of confronted me about me giving him crap in my act, but he really took it well. Yeah. Well, I thought that everyone was going to do that. (laughs) And so I think I started going for celebrities even harder. And I'm telling you, to this day, there's quite a handful of people that loathe me. And the good news is quite a few people have, like, come around. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I learned from the great Don Rickles, which he and I had many conversations about this. Yeah. And... It was like I actually Randy and I had uh, Don and his wife over for dinner shortly before he passed away. And, you know, he would tell me stories about Gregory Peck confronting him. And I'd be like, oh, my God, Gregory Peck, what'd you do? And he said, I'd get in his face and make a joke, you know, and um, Joan Rivers was a little different in that she just didn't care, which I thought was genius. So I kind of had the two perspectives. Don was basically saying, hang in there, kid. They kind of eventually come around sometimes. Mm -hmm. And Joan was going, isn't it fabulous? I love it. Enjoy the press. So it was it was good advice. But there's still going to be folks that don't. I'm an acquired taste. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, and uh, and good luck with everything. Thank you. I need it. <laughs> All right. Wow. Thank you so much to Kathy Griffin, and I am sending her all of the good vibes for her recovery. If you haven't seen her documentary, A Hell of a Story, I definitely recommend that you check it out wherever you rent or buy movies online. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.